Welcome to the Educating All Learners Alliance podcast. Today, I'm joined by Wendy Tucker from the National Center for Special Education and Charter Schools and Megan Whitaker from the National Center for Learning Disabilities. They'll be sharing a brief summary and update on the U.S. Department of Education guidance for schools during COVID-19 related to students with disabilities. Wendy, Megan, welcome. Please feel free to take it away. Thank you. Um, my name is Megan Whitaker. I'm the Director of Policy and Advocacy at the National Center for Learning Disabilities. Hi, I'm Wendy Tucker. I'm the Senior Director of Policy at the National Center for Special Education and Charter Schools. And so today we'll talk about the different types of guidance that the Department of Education has put out in response to the challenges that schools have faced since the pandemic hit back in February. And when the pandemic first began, schools closed for a few days or a few weeks at a time and no one really knew what to do. And pretty quickly, the US Department of Education began to put out guidance. And the first piece that they put out in early March actually suggested that if a district closed its schools and did not provide educational services to the general student population, they were not required to serve students with disabilities during that time. But once schools resumed, they would need to also resume for students with disabilities. And advocates, of course, took issue with that interpretation, because as you can imagine, that interpretation of the law led to some schools saying, we don't have the capacity to provide services to students with disabilities if they aren't learning in person, so we'll just close schools entirely to all students. And in some places, no students received any education while districts figured out what to do. But this also meant that if schools transitioned to an online platform, if they were sending instructional packets to students, they had to provide FAPE to students with disabilities. So in that same piece of guidance, the department also said that where education was happening for general, um, general education students, the same opportunities had to be provided to students with disabilities. And I quote, schools must ensure that to the greatest extent possible, each student with a disability can be provided the special education and related services identified in the student's IEP developed under IDEA or a plan developed under Section 504. And there were some key points made in this early March guidance. Uh, first, the department acknowledged that providing FAPE can and will look different right now during this pandemic and would likely vary for each student. And if a student did not receive services during a school closure, their IEP team must determine whether and to what extent compensatory services might be needed to make up for those skills that a student may have lost during this time. And they also suggested that IEP teams might wanna develop distance learning plans or a contingency plan outlining how these services would be provided in case of a school closure, because we anticipated that school, school closures might continue whether the students were online, whether services were provided virtually or by phone, or even in the child's home if that was safe. So that was the first piece of guidance. And then as schools remained closed, more guidance was issued on March 21st. And this clarified uh, the previous guidance by saying, ensuring with compliance with the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, Section 504 of the Rehab Act, and Title II of the ADA, should not prevent any schools from offering educational programs through distance instruction. So this really clarified that not being able to serve students with disabilities should not be the reason the schools closed and that you actually did have to serve students with disabilities during this time. So it went on to clarify that federal law allows for flexibility in determining how to meet student needs. FAPE can look different during a pandemic. It might involve distance instruction, it might involve virtual instruction or other means and that some instruction and services provided virtually 
or through particular types of assistive technology was okay. For some students, it may happen by phone. For others, they may need printed instructional materials. It really depends on the unique needs of each child and schools had to figure that out and make sure they were individualizing. It also touched on the flexibility that already exists within the law. The department laid out and really recognized the inherent flexibility that exists on many things in IDEA, including that IEP teams could hold meetings remotely or virtually. IEP teams, of course, including parents, could agree to different timelines for IEP meetings, for reevaluations or other procedures that have timelines within the law. And the department acknowledged that some evaluations might have to be postponed if they could only be done in person, because right now it was hard to you know, meet students in person, but it's not ex exactly quite clear how they would monitor that because no waivers have been, have been given to states on issues like evaluation, but the department was encouraging flexibility in, in these areas. And then in June and July, as the school year was ending, a few more uh, pieces of guidance were issued for, for states and school districts. These had less to do with instruction for students with disabilities and more to do with things like dispute resolution, funding, evaluations. And a couple of the takeaways include um, that parents and LEAs could agree to extend timelines for things like mediation if they were going through dispute resolution. They could also agree to hosting those meetings or conferences virtually. And it discussed the importance of collaboration and really coming to agreement between schools and families about how to handle these things in the best interest and safety of everybody. Another key point was that IDEA funds could be used to support the purchase of technology that makes education more accessible and that devices purchased uh, with IDEA funds could be used to support student learning at home. And this is particularly important because we know that there is a digital divide for students and it's important that, that schools use funds creatively to make sure that all students can get connected. It also made clear that LEAs still had to meet requirements related to the amount of spending on special education, even though budgets were being reduced locally and schools were facing a difficult time financially, uh, it was still important and LEAs would still be required to you know, uh, meet the same requirements on how much they spend on special education each year. Now these guidance documents that I've described are kind of the initial set of documents that came out from the Department of Education to guide schools through this time um, as they were kind of in the very beginning stages of planning for what the next school year would look like. And as school closures continued and plans were made to try to get kids back into school for the fall, we saw another wave of guidance issued, which Wendy will talk about next. Thank you, Megan. Yeah, so as the school year started this year, 2020-2021 school year, um, in different ways across the country, uh, it was clear that there were issues coming up. And so OSEP and OCR both issued new guidance in September um, in the form of Q&A documents to address some of those things. So the OSEP guidance is specific to issues under IDEA, and then the OCR guidance is really specific to issues related to civil rights of students with disabilities under 504 and ADA. Um, so I'm gonna give a little bit of highlight from that guidance, and I think it gives insight into um, some of the things that, that were happening around the country and some of the concerns that uh, the department had. So first, uh, sort of a broad thing that you'd notice in that guidance is both of them start with really strong language encouraging in-person learning. And that's consistent with the Department of Education's messaging throughout the pandemic. Um, they both do recognize obviously that they're, that in-person learning uh, isn't happening consistently and you know that, that there's a pandemic. And so they um, address the other issues as well. 
They also give a clear reminder that faith is required regardless of the fact that there's a pandemic. And they go so far as to quote Andrew F., which many of you may be familiar with, a Supreme Court case that really um, makes sure to specify that the bar is high for educating kids with disabilities and that all kids with disabilities have to have, quote, the chance to meet challenging objectives. And so they quote that in the guidance, which I think is telling. Um, and then they go on in the OSEP guidance to address issues that I would put into three main categories, IEPs and IEP meetings, evaluations and reavals, and then extended school year or ESY. So for IEPs and IEP meetings, the guidance really reiterates that meetings can take place through alternative means, as I think Megan mentioned. It highlights the importance of that contingency planning that Megan talked about, although they don't use that term in this document. They really encourage teams to include in the IEPs specifics on how it will be implemented in person, remote, or in a hybrid setting. And they remind IEP teams that the list of required members of teams that's in IDEA still applies, as do the procedures for excusing required members. So you can guess that apparently IEP meetings were happening where required team members weren't present. And so the department is saying, hey, you still have to follow these rules and have the right people um, in the room or, or on, the, on the video for these conversations. Um, in the context of evaluations and reevaluations, they issued a reminder that the timelines are intact and that schools need to work to figure out how to get evaluations done, even if in-person uh, meetings aren't happening, and that they have to do it within the timelines in IDEA or within state law if their state law has a different timeline. And they remind IEP teams that reavals um, can use existing data and can be based solely on that data if the review is sufficiently comprehensive. And then finally, on the OSEP guidance, they talk about ESY. And this was, um, was really interesting. They note what I think we all recognize that a lot of schools were unable to provide ESY um, this past year because of the pandemic. But then they say because of that, and if that was the case for your school, you should now think about it more broadly. You should consider providing extended school year, not just in the summer, but during the regular school day, during vacations, during breaks, wherever appropriate. So very interesting that they're really looking at ESY in that broader way. Um, so as I mentioned, the OSEP guidance really looks at civil rights issues for students with disabilities. In this guidance document, there are a few things related to sexual harassment complaints that are outside the scope of this discussion. So I'm not covering those. They're in there, but they're not related to what we're discussing. Um, so with that, with that piece pulled out, I would say that OCR guidance really also falls into three categories. There's sort of broad legal questions. There's the issue of prioritizing categories of students for returning to in-person learning. And then they, they have some information about mask requirements. So we're gonna look at each of those little categories. So broad legal questions. The first one is, should be an obvious one. Do ADA and Section 504 apply in the remote setting? The answer, which I hope is not a surprise to you, is yes. You still have to meet the accessibility needs of students with disabilities even in a remote setting. Um, they also make it clear you have to conduct your evaluations, your reavals. Um, they do note that under 504, the timeline for evals and reavals is different than under IDEA. While IDEA and most state statutes have specific timelines, the, the timeline in 504 is within a reasonable time. 
and they note that they usually look at the IDEA timeline for that, but that there is flexibility because it's not a specific timeline. Timeline, and then they go, um, they they sort of continue the thread that Megan mentioned in the earlier guidance of talking about parents and schools collaborating and finding mutual agreement on some of this stuff and how important that is. Another broad legal question is whether states or districts can make sort of across the board decisions about reducing or limiting services. For example, can a, can a district say for every kid who has speech therapy in our district, when we go to remote learning, you're only gonna get 30 minutes a week. The answer to that is no. Those decisions have to remain individualized and you can't just make these broad sweeping decisions even in the midst of a pandemic. Um, and then the final piece of sort of broad legal guidance is something that we heard about happening in several districts um, where parents were being required to sign waivers of their rights to pursue due process for their child in order for their child to receive remote instruction. And it should be no surprise here that that's illegal. You can't require a family to waive rights to give them what they have a legal right to. So please don't do that. Um, and those districts were shut down from doing that. Right, so the second area of OCR guidance was around prioritizing categories of students for return to in-person. And the guidance made it clear you cannot prioritize return. You cannot say we are going to return these students um, if based on race, color, or national origin. Um, that violates uh, constitutional protection. You can prior prioritize return based on disability. Um, and in some circumstances, they point out, state might require in-person learning for some students. Um, and so a lot of schools have been doing that where the buildings are closed for the gen ed population, but are open for some of the higher needs kids with disabilities who haven't been able to really access their education or get faith in the virtual environment. However, the guidance also says if students don't wanna return because of health concerns, you still have to provide faith. So you can't say, we're opening the buildings for the, our kids with disabilities. If you don't come, you don't get educated. Like you still have to make that plan for students who aren't willing to come for health reasons. And then the final OCR guidance is kind of related to that. It's around masks. Um, in this section, they note that the CDC recommends face coverings, but then they also note that for some students with disabilities, and they give an example of a child with extreme sensory issues, a face covering require, a requirement might prevent them from receiving faith. So for example, if a student just cannot wear the face covering, you, you know, then, then telling them, well, then you can't come to school could violate faith for that student. And so they encourage schools to make reasonable modifications to the rules and policies to balance the needs of those students with the health and safety requirements of the school community. Um, so that's a quick summary of the guidance that came out in the fall. I think now we want to take a little bit of time just to talk about guidance that we, we might see coming in the future or guidance that we, we think might be needed. And I'm going to turn it back over to Megan for, to start that conversation. Well, one of the things that I think is really clear here is that, um, you know, the Department of Education has been pretty responsive. We've seen a lot of guidance put out this year on a variety of topics. And I think as it became clear what was happening on the ground level, more specific guidance has come out over time. And I think that that's, that's progress. Um, and at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, for example, if we think about evaluations, they basically reiterated, you still have to follow guidelines. You still have to do all of the things that IDA requires you to do 
Um, but the big question was how. And so what for me, I think one of the things that I think is really needed is more specifics um, and it, whether or not it comes out in the form of guidance, I think it would be really great to see the Department of Education either partnering with uh, TA centers or other experts that they have available to them to really help districts figure out the how. Because I think that's where there's a lot of, a lot of districts struggling right now. You know, the department was really clear that evaluation timelines remain in place. They gave suggestions for how you might gather information that's needed in an evaluation. Um, but I don't know that that's enough for districts to actually complete good and comprehensive evaluations right now. Um, I think that there are some best practices or policies that districts can be implementing to get at the best and most comprehensive evaluations, given the challenging scenario they find themselves in. There's a lot of data that can be collected on academics. Um, and there's a, a lot of opportunity here uh, for schools to partner with families and learn from what parents are seeing at home with their child and really get creative with evaluations during this time. So that's one area that I think deserves some more attention um, and will really be important as, as kids are increasingly returning to school, as kids are increasingly falling behind in academics. It's gonna be really important to be able to tell the difference between what is a struggling learner who did, hasn't gotten the right instruction versus a student who's struggling due to a disability. And so that's one area that NCLD is really focusing on and we'll be issuing some resources on in the coming weeks with the National Association of School Psychologists. But I still think that there's more to be done here from the federal perspective and I would love to see um, resources come out on that topic. And another topic that, that uh, I would love to see um, more resources come out on is the issue of how to address discipline during COVID in both the in-person and the remote settings. So for in-person, we have this new math guidance and that's great. But as the schools continue to reopen um, and go back and forth between these two um, settings with all the new health and safety requirements, schools are gonna need some guidance on how to balance that health and safety with the needs and challenges of students with disabilities. And given the fact that students with disabilities have been disproportionately the subject of harsh discipline, suspensions, expulsions, restraints, seclusion, um, calls to law enforcement. Um, this is a new layer and it will be critical to get it right with this new layer. Megan and I partnered to write a white paper on this um, where we gave some, some guidance and some suggestions um, from our perspective, our organization's perspectives, but we would love to see guidance um, from the Department of Ed and think that would be, you know, really valuable to schools. And in the virtual setting, it's even more challenging in some ways. You know, you're hearing all these stories about kids being suspended into breakout rooms or police being called when something's seen in the background or, you know, a kid tripping over a, um, a BB gun and picking it up and being suspended. And so guidance on what degree, to what degree the home is now the classroom for discipline purposes and how schools should handle these things would be really helpful. Um, and in both situations, guidance on what constitutes a removal and how to collect that data is going to be critical so that we can get an idea of what's happening, where the challenges are, and how we can move forward in the best way um, while, you know, making sure that students have, especially with all the learning loss that's already occurred, have the best opportunity to not be removed from their academic settings. So we would love to see um, and hope to see some additional guidance on that. Well, thank you so much, Wendy and Megan, for joining us today. Now, if people want to know more about your work and the resources you mentioned, where can they go? 
So there are a lot of resources on our organization's website. It's ncsecs.org, or you can feel free to reach out directly to me, wtucker at ncsecs.org. And the National Center for Learning Disabilities has information at our website, www.ncld.org on topics, including evaluations like we talked about earlier, as well as some COVID-19 specific resources at ncld.org slash COVID-19, or you can reach me at mwhitaker at ncld.org. And you can also check out the Educating All Learners YouTube page for our webinar recordings. We did one earlier this year with Wendy and Megan on disproportionate discipline in COVID-19, as Wendy mentioned. We also have recordings on other policy updates within the last few months. Thank you all for joining us today. We appreciate it and hope you join us again. Until next time, I'm Gabrielle Oates, and this is the Educating All Learners Alliance podcast.